Welcome to the House of X Book Club. I am Rob, your host, and with me is the crew minus Roger. So, Drew, how you doing? Fantastic. That that uh, was a good that was a good dance session. Thanks, guys. I, I started to say every week you got new moves, and I'm bound and determined to learn at least some of them. Uh, you can't. They're just made up on the spot. I have no moves whatsoever. Well, your improvising is fantastic, man. Um, <laughs> I believe at that point it's called interpretive interpretive dance. dance. Interpretive dance. How's it going, Shane? I am doing pretty good. I get to watch Drew dance interpretively, and that makes my whole evening better. Wow. You know, Yay. we could just do an hour-long dance session and sit in awe of Drew's moves. That's too much cardio. <laughs> too much cardio. Rowan, how's it going? Hello. It's going okay, especially with Drew's dancing. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I get that a lot, said no one ever. Yeah. <laughs> said us uh tonight we're going to be talking about fantastic four number 62 release date is february 14th 1967 so it's a little trip back in time as i mentioned last episode this is kind of a look at a character that starts in fantastic four and then shows up later in the x-men cover date is may 1967 credits here we have stanley writing jack kirby penciling Joe Sinnott doing the inking, Stan Goldberg doing the coloring, Sam Rosen doing the lettering, and of course, Stan Lee on edit. Uh, the title is, And One Shall Save Him. So, And One Shall Save Him. Uh, I, I prefer I wanna, where you were going with it at first, And One Shall Shave Him. I think One <laughs> Shall Shave Him. Um, Let's take a look at this cover before we get in here. This is art by Jack Kirby with Joe Sinnott doing the inking. And there's nothing wrong with the art, per se, except for one thing. What we're looking at never happens in the book. <laughs> and why is Iceman on the cover? Oh, that's not. He, he, it's a figure that you're not supposed to recognize, and he's covered in energy, right? So it's not supposed to be Iceman. It's just an unknown figure. Okay, you guys, full disclosure, ahead of ahead of anything, you guys are going to have to do a lot of explaining to me as to what the hell was happening this entire issue because okay. I I knew nothing <laughs> about any of this. Oh, oh, I was so confused the whole time. <laughs> of course, we started in the middle of a storyline. Confusing. In the Fantastic Four. <laughs> Uh, we'll we'll fill in the blanks a little bit. I kind of figure that that they did a good enough job filling in the blanks with you know boxes and and you know just kind of kind of letting you know what happened just by talking about it. Yeah, by page three, I could kind of get a feel for what was happening like previously mm -hmm. to in relation to what was happening now. It's the stuff that happens in this issue that confuses the hell out of me. Yeah, me too. And it starts right <laughs> off the bat with the trans barrier phone. That, that, like, okay, I realize that all words are made up, but Stan yes. is making up extra words. <laughs> trans barrier phone. So it's a phone that crosses barriers, which I think could also just be a phone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically. Phones do that. <laughs> Geography is a barrier, so we're on well, a trans barrier phone right now yeah. because we're sound has a barrier geography. As well. 
So so let me let me throw another spoiler out there, right? On the cover, we see this hidden figure that we don't, you know, we can't identify. Iceman. We, we see this man, Blastar, this this monster or supervillain or whatever he is, Blastar. And he's blasting the hell out of Reed Richards and this figure that are kind of floating in space on an asteroid. And it says, uh, Drew, do you have the cover up? I do. What's it say? Read it to me. And one shall save him. That's it. That's it? There's no more to the cover? It seems to me that down at the bottom, there's it says something, but... I that's yeah, cut I, off on mine. Okay, if it is. so I guess yeah, that's I don't, it. I don't see that. I don't see anything what, other than that either. Okay, so what the artwork implies is that Reed Richards and this figure, or Reed Richards, is being attacked by this creature on the cover, and there's this character going to save him. Reed Richards never has to fight anybody in this issue. He doesn't certainly doesn't fight Blastar. In fact, he never meets Blastar. There's always been a joke about stuff that you see on the cover that doesn't actually happen in the book. This is, this takes a cake. I mean, this is totally it. It's a this, pretty cover though. It's a great, yeah. It's a great cover by, uh, by Kirby. It just, yeah, just doesn't happen. The colors are pretty epic. Yeah. It's, it's a nice piece of art for sure. So by the time this issue begins, Reed Richards is already lost in the negative zone. And it's as a result of a battle that he had with the Sandman. Okay. Fantastic Four are super distraught. And Reed is floating along this like Kirby made space wasteland, you know, where there's just like various things floating around and there's all this energy crackling. It's the negative zone. According to Reed, and he's told the Fantastic Four this, there's no saving me. Don't try. So, of course, they think he's lost forever, and they're they're just really distraught. So Crystal, who's an inhuman, she shows up with her big, gigantic, teleporting dog with a mustache, Lockjaw. <laughs> and the Human Torch, of course, is Crystal's boyfriend. So she shows up and is really happy to see him. And he has, you know, basically has hit the back of his hand on his forehead. It's no use. Reed's gone, basically. You know, he's just moaning and groaning. Um, he explains to her what happened. So he can't really be happy to see her right now because of what's going on. She decides to take Lockjaw and teleport her back to the Inhumans so that she can bring help. Meanwhile, a couple of space cops, maybe. I don't know if they're space cops, but you know, they're they're they seem to be space copish. They drop off a wrapped body on an asteroid that Reed has found himself clinging to. And whoever they have in this wrap, what they call an adhesion adhesion suit. Yep. Which to me just sounds like a, a suit made out of flypaper. Double stick tape. Yeah, they toss him out and he sticks to the asteroid and they're like, great, well, we're out of here. This guy, was he's been in enough trouble. We're going to leave him. And they take off. When Crystal finally gets to the Inhumans, so finally, it just takes seconds, she asks them to come back to help. And in his infinite wisdom, the king of the Inhumans, Black Bolt, sends her back with the one person who can help. Triton. 
And I don't know if you know who Triton is, but he's the inhuman that swims underwater, can breathe underwater. He's an aquatic inhuman. The dollar store Namor. <laughs> I was going to say the dar- dollar store uh, Aquaman, but Aquaman's the dollar store Namor. Um, I was going to say it's like the, the upgraded version of uh, Lagoon Boy or Lagoon, whatever his name is. One of, one of Aqua Boy's homies. <laughs> to put it in perspective wow drew that's a deep dive dude i you're that's good man <laughs> yeah well triton is basically lagoon boy or whatever his name is <laughs> lagoon lad oh <laughs> uh, well it 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 kind of floors me that for some reason triton is the one that could say all the inhumans it's a whole kingdom full of inhumans, and Triton is the one that can save Reed Richards. But they don't explain why. Yeah, yeah they do. They kind of do, and I'll I'll, I'll get. Well, to they kind of do, but it's <laughs> that's the best you've got. <laughs> hey, this is this is a company that all they have to do is say magnetism, and you're supposed to go, oh, well, duh. It's not that he can save. It's not that he can save Reed. It's that he's the only one that can save Reed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the part that gets me. It's not that he can do it. It's that he's the only one who can do it. Yeah. This this is actually the part of this book I had the least issue with. <laughs> 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 well, I'm looking at the... Uh, okay, so Triton is apparently the only one that could save him. How about just taking Crystal and the dog that can teleport? To read and then teleport him back. She can't breathe in space and he doesn't breathe air so he can breathe in space. Uh, Reed Richards is out there and he seems to be doing fine. Reed Richards <laughs> is Mr. Fantastic. He can do anything. He's just a stretchy oh. boy. He stretches his lungs so big that he's got a bunch of extra oxygen in there and he's fine. Mm. Well, I know there you nothing. Go. I know nothing about him other than he's stretchy and smart. <laughs> Drew just no prize that shit. That's... <laughs> okay well so because triton is a water breathing aquatic human he has the ability to survive in the negative zone see that's what i'm talking about that's why they don't really explain it because they don't explain how this is supposed to fucking work (laughs) here's a quote deepest space whether positive or negative is like a vast, endless ocean. Only Triton is able to maneuver under such conditions. Uh, okay. Bullshit! Bullshit! Because fish have those organs that run down the side of their bodies that, like, are almost like electrical impulses that they they work like whiskers for animals. So that's what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He's using his little fish sense to sense things. Yeah, okay. It's His perfect. little whiskers. Good job. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, <laughs> so Triton finds Reed, and he comes back through the barrier between the positive and the negative zones. Um, but the wrapped-up body frees itself and follows. This, of course, is Blastar. Dun-dun-dun. Blastar steps into the, well, he what he calls the puny world. And he's looking for an ally. And of course, he's snatched up by the Sandman, who has been hanging out on the roof of the Fantastic Force headquarters this whole time. Just hanging out there, apparently gloating. 
Just chilling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he immediately recognizes that the Sandman is like him, a criminal, <laughs> and figures that they can partner up. He shows I Sandman his powers, which, you know, are his explosive fingertips. And uh, <laughs> Sandman's like, okay, I'll team up with this guy. Who is it that brought up the trans phone, trans barrier phone? Um, yeah. So they've been in contact with Reed Richards this whole time. And of course, Reed's like, don't try to save me. It's it's hopeless. Reed's a pretty smart guy. But Triton, he just kind of floats out there, grabs Reed and floats back. Oh, Triton has a very powerful tool with him that helps him save Reed. Yeah, he does. It's a gun that blasts air. And he's able to direct that gun that blasts air so that he can propel himself through the vastness of space. I mean, fire extinguishers would do that in all sorts of movies and books. So that well, makes sense. Yeah. But if you listen to what he said at the beginning, because the deepest space, positive or negative, is like a vast, endless ocean, he should have already been able to do that without the air gun. Yeah. But I don't know. That's just me. Maybe not. When Crystal goes back to, to ask for help, uh, she arrives on the island where the Inhumans are staying. And they just ended a big battle with a bunch of uh, bunch of soldiers, right? This military faction that's trying to take over the island and turn it into a base. Uh, those guys apparently didn't expect the Inhumans to be there, um, but but at any rate, that's that's you know we had a nice little fight with some random military group uh, that were hoping to use this island so they could take over Europe, I think. I think they just wanted to take over NATO. That's what they kept saying. They right. kept talking about yeah. NATO's going to get them. Yeah. Oh, we better hide from NATO. NATO's going to get us. Of course, Reed and Triton come back. Fantastic Four's together again. They're happy. Reed and Sue are sweet-talking each other. Johnny and Crystal are canoodling and sweet-talking each other. All and of a sudden, it turns it's... from Fantastic Four to Pornhub. <laughs> Weird cuckold video where they make they, they make Ben Grimm watch as they have some really ex stretchy four way. Oh. oh god! Wow! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just wow. Yep. Well, Ben doesn't seem to be enjoying himself. Um, right, he's kind of grumbling about it. Yeah, he sits down and he says, "Yuck to love." Which uh, I think it's kind of it doesn't really I don't know it's a comment that makes sense or it makes us think that he's lonely right it, it right it's got sour grapes yeah it makes me ask what happened to Alicia I mean it doesn't make me ask enough you know or interested enough that I want to go back and read those issues of Fantastic Four necessarily but uh, wasn't he with somebody didn't he have Alicia he marries so. Alicia eventually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's another thing. By this time, Reed and Sue were actually married. Yep. They did that real quick, I have yeah. to say. I, I Especially for the 60s. I mean, yeah. there's like no long courtship, no... <laughs> Siri with a fringe on top? I, don't I know considered that a for a while um, I considered for a while to read the, the Fantastic Four annual where they get married. Because the X-Men go to the wedding. Um, but They're it's long. It. 
it's long and it's not fun to read necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we can go back and read that as a bonus episode, but uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a slog. It really has all the superheroes in the Marvel universe and all the supervillains in it as well. So it may be something we should, should touch on eventually. Let's, let's talk about thoughts. What do we think about this story so far? Can, can I can I ask my first stupid question Please. before we go further? Because I'm sure yeah. it's going to come up. What the hell is the negative zone? Negative zone, in fact, is I think I don't know if they mention it here, but the negative zone is a a dimension that Reed Richards discovered, and it seems to me he discovered it while trying to save the Inhumans, which is kind of why they feel like they should save him. There's a whole bunch of different aliens that live in the the negative zone. Again, it's a dimension that kind of, you know, it's negative space. Um, And it'll come up again and again with its own own monsters. Like uh, Annihilus is a character from the negative zone. So is it like like a parallel dimension, but opposite? No. Like, Like the same side of a different coin? No. It's just like deep space, but somewhere that's not our deep space. <laughs> but okay. it's somehow sometimes connected to the upper atmosphere of Earth. Right. Possibly? Isn't that funny? According to this book, sure. Because uh, Reed was afraid that he was going to kind of soar into the explosive layer uh, just outside of it. What did you call it? It Earth. was the, yeah, it was the um, explosive atmosphere. Uh, just outside of Earth. Okay. I don't think they knew what the uh, negative zone was yeah. at this point. <laughs> yeah, they made stuff up. They 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 made a lot of stuff up. There well, was... it's all made up. Come on. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know. One of I mean. the things. So there were a couple of things that bugged me about this one. So they used the term debris mm-hmm. like three or four times in a row in referencing what was going on in the negative zone, and then. When someone said, you have to stop using debris, come up with something else. They looked and went, asteroids, nah, meteors, nah, we can't <laughs> use debris. That's what, space boulders. <laughs> yeah. Space boulders. <laughs> yep. I think space debris was through. probably a safe word. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, that's it's been my safe word once or twice. Shane's <laughs> tied to a chair and he just blurts out debris. <laughs> I have a thought. And my thought here is I'm, I'm a Spider-Man fan, right? Uh-huh. And Sandman was a Spider-Man villain. But he became a member at some point of the Fantastic Four's nemesis group, the Frightful Four which I imagine is right after this because part of the Frightful Four is Medusa of the Inhumans, Black Bolt's wife. But this costume is a costume that I think he wears when he's part of the Frightful Four. This is not his regular costume. I mean, the original costume he had was just a green striped shirt and a pair of khaki pants. Yeah. In fact, after this, he goes back to that look because it's a lot better than wearing a jockstrap on his head, which is what this looks like. Yeah, yeah, he has this look for a very short period of time. It's yeah, it's he yeah, he looks like he got 
invited to the Folsom Street Fair and just did not understand what at all what was going on. Mm-hmm. Wow, same. What about that? <laughs> same. Drew doesn't get it either. Can we talk for a second about Blastar? This is mm-hmm. I've mentioned this before in another episode, but the artist that designed the character drew the book and his face changes shape four times in this single issue. Yeah. That's the truth. That's the truth. It's different Um, from the cover. It's, it it just keeps changing, but so does Ben Grimm too. (laughs) Like there's times where, you know, he looks like normal Ben Grimm. And then there's like times it looks like he just looks like a, a, a sandstone that has fallen down a long flight of stairs. Now, I will say, pages four, I think, yeah, it's four and five, are awesome. Like when they're standing in front of the giant screen and Reed is in black and white floating out into the negative zone. I was yeah. like, this is fucking dope. That confused the shit out of me. So that style of art is something that they use quite a bit in the 60s. And and even in co- covers, at some point it kind of almost looks like photography, but but yeah. put on newsprint. It's not; it's art. But again, it's you know they've applied a different style of getting it across. So it's black and white, but again, it looks like it looks like newsprint. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's really cool too. Um, I didn't it, realize it was a television until page fourteen. My note even says page four slash five. Why is Johnny suddenly in the negative zone? And then, oh, Sue and Ben are there too. Were they in the negative zone this whole time? I am so confused. Uh, <laughs> because they were on the telephone in page one, and now all of a sudden they have a video feed. Yeah. And then, like, just a random girl just appears. I'm like, who the hell is this crystal girl? And where did she come from? Like, I love then, these questions uh, that you have. And then on page six, I finally figured out that the dog teleported her in. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> My my biggest thing about the dog is that stash. I mean, that this, dog this is, is a awesome. big old this is a big old dog with a truly like massive porn stash. You know, um, my name is Lockjaw, but you could call me Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> and his little Biden antenna thing—that's pretty. Oh cool too. yeah, he looks like something that should be in Saga. By you mm-hmm. know, it looks like something Fiona Staples would draw. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, he is a character that is awesome, even today. So this is it's kind of standard Kirby and Lee stuff, right? But I gotta say that I don't know if this is like just on par for Fantastic Four, but there's so much going on, like the Reed being lost in the negative, the blast art. Nothing happens in any of these little story bits that they have, but there's so many different bits. So we have the Reed being lost in the negative zone story arc or storyline. The Inhumans with their battle um, with this military group. And then Blastar and Sandman. So there's all these different angles that are being taken. None of them are really strong, but they carry over to next issues. So it's it's interesting. So I did learn about something new in this book mm-hmm. and I was going to, I thought maybe I would ask you guys, maybe if, if any of you had ever done this, you know, when you were listening to someone, have any of you ever used the stance of full attention? 
the attention yes. stance. On page 13, Black Chris, Crystal goes to the Inhumans and is pleading her case. And and I believe it's Gorgon is like, um, she is one of us with Black Bolt's ascent. We will do what we can. There is not a second to lose, says Crystal. I will explain. Gorgon again says, speak then, Crystal. Black Bolt assumes the stance of full attention. You know, <laughs> so so here's here's this. I got to say. Gorgon having to translate everything Black Bolt does. At some point, I wanted Crystal to say, look, dumbass, I could see him. All right. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yes, but you're not looking at his genitals. And I always am. You can see him. But do you understand what that stance means? <laughs> Me too. Oh, it disappeared. I did see that briefly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought it, I thought this issue was fun. I, I it was fun. It. it was silly. It was it was weird, <laughs> but not in a bad way by any means. But it was weird. It was the Fantastic Four via Stanley and Jack Kirby. Yeah it it did have it was very Stanley and Kirby. It had like the talking through action. You know the way people talk through their yeah. actions. They tell you what they're going to do while they're doing it. Right. To you. While they're I'm doing it. I'm going to put my yeah. right step on the ladder. I'm going to put my left foot on the ladder. I'm going to make. And, oh my God, Ben Grimm. <laughs> With his temper tantrums and breaking shit. I got to say, my, I have a note on Ben here. And it is, uh, let me, let me get to it real quick here. It says, uh, Ben Grimm, the thing, the college graduate with multiple degrees is a complete idiot. <laughs> um the way he the way he talks, the way he acts, it's like, boy, how did you even get along in life? I mean, much less go to college and become a pilot, you know. I was glad he he threw his little temper tantrum and broke that computer screen or TV or whatever it was, because that's the <laughs> only way I found out it was a monitor. <laughs> maybe that maybe that's why he did it i mean they're like oh nobody's gonna realize this is a tv unless we break it wow. okay yeah even if it was if, like if them all of a sudden in the negative zone or a tv just the art on that page was really cool though mm -hmm. i yeah. really dug that yeah that was some pretty cool stuff and i i think that kind of art shows up more in the fantastic four i don't know that we'll see any of it in the x-men but but it is something too that's kind of indicative of the the negative zone, you know. It's this whole black and white space kind of a thing. I did some reading. I did some reading and and uh, on this this particular issue on the fandom page, and apparently the soldiers that the Inhumans are fighting are supposed to resent, re represent the Cuban military. What? I didn't get that at all. Yeah, well, I didn't either, but that's what it says. I was totally thinking German. Yeah. Also, the island that they're on was owned by Black Panther. Really? Did yeah. they ever name the island in the issue? Uh, no, they don't. It just says small island off the coast of Europe. But but here's the thing is that the, the Inhumans have a long history of trying to find a homeland and setting up a home. Um, so my guess is that this shows up in many issues of other books, whether it's you know, Fantastic Four, Avengers, or whatever, and they're on the same island. So that'll probably come up someplace. In Marvel 2 and 1, number 75, we get a bit of Blastar's story. Apparently, he was the ruler of Balur, 
which is B-A-L-U-U-R, until his people revolted and decided to exile him, stick him in a sticky suit, and then adhere him to the side of a space boulder. So it was a coup. It was a coup. That doesn't make him a criminal. I mean, maybe he was a big dick, but, but, you know, that doesn't make him a criminal necessarily. Yeah, I was going to say, man, I kind of disagree with you. I think that was very uncool. <laughs> <laughs> Not cool nice. at all. <laughs> Last thoughts before we roll? I find it creepy that the women in this book all stare straight forward. Mm-hmm. It's and, uh, it's, and it's Bolt. only Black the Bolt girls. Does it too. No, Black Bolt does it too. He'll but just look some, off into space. <laughs> there's some really great art, like Triton looks awesome. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is talking and looking at each other, and there's Medusa in the background, just kind of staring at the reader. It's yeah. disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't notice just... that until now, and now I can't unsee it. Typical, <laughs> typical Kirby style, though, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's done it before. It just like we've we've been away from it for a while, and now it's back, and I don't like it. <laughs> It's fine when you're in the middle of it. Then when you get into something new and you have to go back to it, it's a little jarring. Yeah. yeah. We respect the man, but we have to acclimatize ourselves to his art. <laughs> there we go. This is uh, in in honor of Roger. May he rest in peace. Um, <laughs> so, Any other last words? Rowan, what did you think? Oh, I, I liked the issue. Okay. Um, it was very much a Lee and Kirby book. Mm-hmm. And after the other ones, it, it felt it felt a bit retroactive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we did we did step back about a year almost. All right. Well, shall we head on to our next issue, our X Men story? Yeah. Oh, yeah. this should be good. I think so. I think so. X Men number fifty three release date was December twelfth, nineteen sixty eight. Uh, a year after the Fantastic Four issue. Cover date is February 1969. Credits go to Arnold Drake for writing. Barry Smith as the penciler, a.k.a. Barry Windsor Smith. Now, that might not mean anything to Drew, but to those of us who have been reading comics for years, holy shit. Drew, did you ever see the the, the limited series called uh, Weapon X? kind of has Wolverine getting his you know they do the adamantium kind of uh, the adamantium treatment and he he's usually most of the issue he's in a tank until he breaks out and he's just a feral monster with wires and cables coming off of him. I know of it but I've never read it. Barry Windsor Smith this was a story that originally showed up in Marvel Comics Presents in 13 installments and Barry Windsor Smith did the artwork, and it is completely amazing artwork. I mean, it's totally stylized, and it's beautiful, and that's his thing. This artwork is nothing like his artwork. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Uh, so just real quick before we... Yeah. So yeah, because we're going to come across his artwork again. Yep. In the... not. I mean, it's not too far off, but he does a two-part story in Uncanny... Mm-hmm. Um, it's about um, Storm and Forge called Life Death. Amazing. And, uh, just <laughs> so, just remember that when we get there. I know it's going to be a little while, but that is gonna that's gonna come up, and it's it's awesome. It'll blow your mind. Yeah. 
Um, I will put it in my notes to remind myself. Yeah, life death. So Barry Smith, of course, does the penciling. Michael D. does the inking. Herb Cooper does the lettering. Stan Lee, of course, is the Stan Lee-est of what he does. The title is The Rage of Blastar. So we get to see a little more about our <laughs> favorite negative zone uh, adhesive monster, Blastar. Barry, boy, I I, <laughs> I look at this and I'm like, yeah, Barry Smith is exactly what we talked about before when I said the rule was you write like Stanley and you draw like Jack Kirby. Because there are some pictures of Blastar in this where I'm like, that is totally Jack Kirby. And I think that's what Barry Smith is doing here. I think he had to draw to make it look like Jack Kirby art. Well, this was his very first full issue of a comic book, too. Yeah, absolutely. Roy Thomas apparently liked him. Smith came on, came to the U.S. in 1968, and he asked for a job at Marvel. And Roy Thomas liked him and hired him to draw this issue of the X-Men. And Barry had no studio space. He'd been kicked out of his hotel at the time. So he did all of his artwork on park benches. Which, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of impressive. Yes, it is. Uh, then he had to go back to the UK because his work visa had run out. And of course, of course, like I said, he came back later and he did some amazing things like Conan the Barbarian and later more X-Men, including an iconic story from Marvel Comics Presents, we uh, Weapon X and Life Death for the X-Men. Amazing stuff, though. Um, I think it's hysterical, though, that, you know, it was like, yeah, let's let's hire this guy to do some artwork. And then it just reminds me of the what was it that episode of Friends or it's like, you know, Joey gets a, a booking and Phoebe's like based on this play. It's just like, oh, based on this play. <laughs> <laughs> That's Barry Smith getting more work. <laughs> yes. Um, so we start the issue with Blastar cruising around the negative zone, aching for a battle. He's bored as hell and he wants to fight somebody. So now we know that apparently he got sent back to the negative zone. Uh, he probably fought the Fantastic Four finally, and they beat him, pushed him through the television set into another dimension. And, and, you know, I actually like the art here. I like the detail on it. I like kind of like how it looks like Kirby, but I know it's very Smith. What I really like about it is the color. I like how the, how it's just a very colorful, uh, a very colorful issue. One of the things that I really thought was pretty cool was that the, the attention to detail, like Blastar, mm -hmm. he's got blasted powers mm -hmm. and they come out of his fingers. Mm -hmm. So here on the first page, he's using his fingers to shoot himself around. It yeah. doesn't look like it's coming out of his hands. It clearly is coming out of his fingers. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And they say so. I mean, they definitely yeah. tell you. Uh, he didn't have a gun like Triton did to shoot air to, to help him maneuver. No, but he's got something better. Yep. Uh, um, Finger guns. One of the things, too, <laughs> that I'd like to point out as we get into the story and talk about the story a little bit is that Blastar is wordier than the beast. <laughs> That guy will not shut up. And this panel is the one I was talking about last episode where the 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 word balloons are out of order. Ah. 
It yeah. starts with, for I am Blastar, king of a limitless domain. But you're supposed to read the one that comes after it first. Yeah. You're supposed to start with the one that says, where is the where is there one who could challenge my majesty? Their legions really? are few. Their fortunes are feeble. For I am Blastar. But the way it's placed, it looks like you're supposed to read <laughs> for I am Blastar box first. Yeah. Yeah, and there's no context for him to be saying that. <laughs> no, reading comic books know. is weird because, like, you kind of there there is a way to do it based on where where they're placed and how they're placed mm -hmm. and it, what's overlapping what, and you kind of it's one of those things that you just learn by doing and it gets ingrained in you and, and yeah. you get used to it and it's kind of hard to you know get it at first but once you get it you get it and absolutely nothing about this issue stuck to those conventions that are in my in my brain nope so uh drew have you ever read a book called how to read comics by scott mcleod no i think i think you would dig it i think you would like it it's it's a book basically scott mcleod tells you how to read comics he tells you how to interpret them and i think it's a really interesting book but he also does it in a bit of a graphic style where you're reading all this stuff coming from a little man walking across the page um you might check it out in fact i may just order a copy for you and give it <laughs> to you it's it's really good who's it by scott mcleod scott mcleod okay yeah yeah he's got a whole bunch of them but how to read comics is the first one and i think it's fantastic um so the x-men are testing out some of xavier's mental machines Okay. Uh, you know, he's dead. He's gone. They decided to go poking around through the various dungeons that he has in the uh, X mansion and kind of see what they can find. Now they're testing some of the stuff. There's a big explosion, much like the one that happened in the Fantastic Four or Sandman fight. And Blastar comes out of the, the host Kirby, Kirby crackle uh, negative zone. And he throws his weight around. Gene has been knocked unconscious because of this, and then the Beast. So Iceman, Cyclops, and Angel have to take on Blastar themselves. He trounces on them pretty bad, I gotta say, till Marvel Girl and Beast come too. And Bobby makes ice mannequins to distract him. And Blastar basically gets electrocuted because he steps in water and and there's this electric floor issue and he dies end of issue we go back again to this whole electric floor thing the x-men really love that <laughs> it's their go-to now it's their go-to <laughs> anytime we get attacked we're putting out that electric floor because that shit is awesome <laughs> it got them so many times they're going to start using they're going to start using uh you know glass bowls and or glass you know, fish bowls and and, yep. and holes in the ground for their enemies. I like this issue a lot. They have no idea who Blastar is or where he's from or why he's there. Uh, it was an accident. It was a freak accident. They kind of bust a hole in the barrier between here and the negative zone, and out comes Blastar. Finally getting to fight somebody. What I really like about it is Iceman making these ice mannequins. The ice golems. Well, these are just mannequins. They don't actually move. They're very still. <laughs> I thought Gene was moving them. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think their arms bend or anything. I think they kind of coast along and 
because they just show them like piling on top of Blastar with, you know. I could have sworn one of them grabbed him by the throat, though. Yes, one of them did grab him by the throat. And he mentioned something about its claws or something. Yeah. Uh, okay. So this is the first so this is the first incident of the ice golem that we see. Why is Jean doing the weird things with her arms again? Like she's in the in the machine <laughs> and all of a sudden she's like trying to land planes. <laughs> <laughs> she's really the one doing interpretive dance. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Um, it reminds me of Scarlet Witch in a way, you know, like you said before, she's doing this thing where it's like she's, uh, well, you said a, a magician's assistant, but I almost think it's like she's casting spells. Nice, nice. She's, she thinks she's Doctor Strange. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, like I said, Blastar dies in this issue. And when I was reading comics, they hadn't brought Blastar back yet. So he, of course, was in the role-playing game books. He was in the marvel universe uh book of the dead a to z yeah yeah he was in the book of the dead which was part of their index of marvel characters and so it was kind of cool to me to go back and read these two issues and go oh this is nice i get to see you know kind of where he started where he ended from what i understand they they brought him back within the last i don't know 20 years in comics and have used him a little bit more so so there's that. But what are your thoughts on this story, guys? One thing that really confused me slash irritated me, I think, mm -hmm. was another new power from Bobby oh, on, oh, yes, on page one. 11, yeah. where he makes smelling salts to wake up Beast. Or Excuse me, oh, it's yeah. frozen, frozen oxygen. Yeah. That was weird. Uh I don't know what frozen oxygen looks like. Is it just ice? I don't know. I mean, what is, what is the, the freezing point of oxygen? I'm going to Google that. But yeah, like oh. also, um, they're just all of a sudden back at the mansion. They're in New York again. They were in San Francisco last issue, or they were based out of San Francisco, but they were fighting in the desert in the Midwest, it said, which was confusing looking back on it. But now... They're back in the mansion, regardless of what Fred Duncan or whatever his name is says. Like they're just back together. They just yeah, they've just totally that that's <laughs> gone. I didn't even think of that, but you're so right. Yeah, fuck Fred Duncan or Amos or whatever his name is. <laughs> We're not doing anything this guy says. Um, yeah, Bobby and Hank had an apartment together, right? Yeah, uh -huh. that was that was the whole thing for them going out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the the melting point of oxygen is negative 361.8 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 218.8 degrees Celsius, 54.36 Kelvin for any fellow nerds. Thank you, Mr. Wizard. I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> Thank you, Google. So you know what I noticed about this issue right off the bat? The one time we needed Stan Lee to explain something to us. In yeah, this case, there. who Blastar was, he's out behind a fucking building trying to learn how to talk to women. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I uh. was like, I was like, so full disclosure, I accidentally read these out of order. I read the X-Men before I read the Fantastic Four. Okay. And so I was like, 
why is there nothing about who Blastar is? And like you said, these books were published a year apart. So the chances mm-hmm. are good that a lot of people had never read the Fantastic Four with Blastar in it because you couldn't get the same books consistently when it was a newsstand book. Right. So an editor's box would have been handy. Yeah. I mean, it didn't have to take up the whole page, but explain where he had been, like why he's in the negative zone. Reed Richards sent him here in Fantastic Four 42. Ta-da! Right. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, it's funny is, uh, we didn't bring this up, but in the uh, issue, the Fantastic Four issue, Uh, On page 20, there's an editorial box explaining the reason that aliens can talk to each other. Yes, I blocked that out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, everyone has one. It's because most of the aliens are outfitted with the new automatic models of the new universally approved no rust automatic translator. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, I find it interesting that you read it backwards, and it really made no less sense than by reading it the other way around. No, it didn't. It didn't make any less sense. I was just like, I was, I was honestly surprised that there was no explanation yeah. from Stan as to who Blastar was. Well, like you said, a year later, we might have forgotten if we didn't even read that. I mean, right. why would we necessarily have read it if it weren't for me going, oh, yeah, Blastar. I kind of want to know where he came from first. This issue also has that annoying comment Bobby makes about women having the vote. Oh, yeah, well, that was, yeah. Yeah, that was like so what? out of left field. Yeah, let me just say uh, that kid Lorna with that warm heart and a good head on her shoulders knew better than to stick around with Bobby Drake. (laughs) Right? It's just weird. Like, Bobby's been the least sexist of them all, I feel like. Like, Hank's definitely done some weird, sketchy shit. He's probably been the most. Yeah. Like, Angel's been pretty misogynistic at times. Cyclops has been pretty misogynistic as well, especially towards Gene. I I do think that Bobby and Hank together are at least a bit dismissive. Like when they were dating, was it Vera and and Zelda? There was the line where Hank said something about going to see their fair maidens. And he goes, oh, I thought we were going to see Vera and Zelda, you know? Yeah, that (laughs) happened. (laughs) But, But it wasn't like outright sexism directed at a woman. You know, right. right. He's that, he, he's more he's just a little inconsiderate, I guess. He's not he's not um he's not like Hank where he was like wench, you know. Right. <laughs> a woman. Female, you know. This is this was a little bit more contemptuous. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, well, one thing I find interesting about this issue is that Blastar has no bearing on the X-Men universe whatsoever. You know, Barry Smith and Arnold Drake came in and they put together this issue. Nobody even talks about Blastar later on. And, <laughs> you know, that's that. 
it's just i mean it's like they, they he's like he was supposed to be the ruler of a world i i wouldn't think he could run the night shift at waffle house mm, yeah yeah well he talks real pretty um <laughs> well so. that, that's the thing too that so the second page of the book seems like it was a page that they added in to fill space they had to add a whole page and it did nothing to explain who he was other than a gigantic douche canoe i think that's enough yeah <laughs> he is that for sure but you're right yeah and it, is it just me or is gene's skirt getting shorter particularly on page three like Could gene be. just gene looks like she's been drugged in on page three Ugh. like she looks like she could be in some really sleazy you know nightclub and the boys are just standing back there watching her it's it's really weird art i did not like it well the beast looks like a giant child with a pituitary disorder so i don't there's there's some issues going on here just all the way around it's got cyclops's visor looks like a hot dog cooker but there's some really stool cuss too like even you go to the next page gene gray kind of interacting with the cosmic field that's a really cool picture yeah I really like, liked I really liked there was a panel of Blastar himself that I thought was really cool looking. Look um, at Gene's eyes on page three though. Like what the hell? And then on page four, the second panel, her eyes and that are perfectly normal and expressive. Hey, the man was working in the park. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> there weren't no Starbucks back then, Drew. Yeah. Also, also let's think about this, right? It was it was uh, December 12th, 1968. He's sitting on a park bench in the middle of December in New York City. That shit was cold. <laughs> Shall we go ahead and move on to the backup of this issue? Yeah. I think that's a great <laughs> idea. I seem so it. excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, welcome to the Club Beast, written by Arnold Drake. Penciled by Werner Roth, inked by John Tartaglioni, and lettered by Gene Izzo. Uh, you know, we've been sticking with, the, well, I started to say we've been sticking with the same. We've had an uptick lately of different letterers. Uh, Her Herb Cooper on this issue, and we see also Gene Izzo here. He was born September 4th, 1948, which makes her 20 years old when she's lettering the X-Men. And she was, uh, let's see, here, Izzo, by the way, was her married name. Her her last name, her actual, her given name, is Jean Simic. And she's the daughter of Artie Simic. So. Um, okay, I was confused by that. It said, yeah. it said that very ineloquently in the credits for this little issue. Yeah. Well, so yeah, it's his daughter. And I think that's pretty cool. They're keeping it in the family, but also she's 20 years old when she got this job. I I don't know. I I think that's I think that's pretty great. Can you imagine lettering from Marvel Comics at the age of 20? I mean, Stan was writing at the age of 16, so yeah, yeah true enough. <laughs> I, and it shows. No, true enough. Um <laughs> so let's go ahead and take a look at the story. Having stolen an experimental solar generator, I think is what they're calling it now, 
uh, for the conquistador, young Hank McCoy lays unconscious on the floor. Uh, he gets up while the villain and his lackey are gloating, and he tries to destroy the power transmitters that will give the conquistador power over the world. There's a big fight, of course, and this, this kind of leans in conquistador's favor till Cyclops, Iceman, and Angel bust in and help def defend or help defeat the bad guys. So they help help Beast out. Now the Conquistador's evil machine begins to malfunction and explodes while he tries to fix it. And it bombards him with electric energy. He's right there trying to play with it, trying to fix it, and it just goes off. The whole base explodes, but Hank is, manages to get his folks out just in time. I want to say again, I forgot if Hank's folks were even there. I was, gonna, I was just going to say it's a good thing he remembered his yeah. folks were there. <laughs> I totally forgot. I'm like, where is Hank? Oh, his folks. Um, apparently, uh, Charles, Charles Xavier, used telekinetics to alter the equipment circle circuits to cause them to explode. So Xavier's the one who killed the conquistador. Not only that, but telekinetics. When did he have telekinetics? I took that as like at the very beginning of, of the book, Gene kept going back and forth between telekinetics and telepathy. Like they didn't know how to use the words. And teleportation. And, and teleportation. Oh, yeah, that yeah. yes. And so I assumed it was that because this story takes place before then. It mm -hmm. wasn't written before then. But it takes place, so I was able to like let it slide a little bit. Yeah, but it was still telekinetics. He's not using telepathy to 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 manage to to you know mess with the the circuits. He's, He's done using... it before. Yeah. All right. Well, then isn't that how he did a took down a bunch of stuff in the Sentinel base? Was he like tele telepathically screwed with the inner like circuitry? You forgot to mention the radio blanket. Oh, well, no, I'm getting to that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about the crimes of Xavier real quick, shall we? Yeah. Charles Xavier, first of all, he's responsible for everybody else in the base blowing up. But he wants to rec recruit Hank. What he does is, and Bobby calls it a radio blanket uh, of telepathic power, he mind wipes Hank's entire town, not just his parents, but the whole damn town so that everybody forgets about him and Hank can just go off with the X-Men. Well, at least it's nice to know as he gets older, he scales back and just wipes minds one building at a time. He <laughs> scales <of> back. <laughs> oh, yeah. This time it was only the hospital. This time it was only the police station. There was that one time where he wiped the whole town. <laughs> It was confusing, though, because I think they were trying to say that he didn't erase the memories of Hank. He just altered the memories so that nobody knew he was a mutant. But right. oh, well, that makes not, it better. It, I mean, it makes it slightly better. Slightly. But my it question, was very my confusing. Question is, my question is, is are they going to remember the time during the football game when he stopped the villains, when he stopped the bad guys? 
and you know, just they like had... scale the wall in front of everybody. I mean, that's a really cool heroic feat. That was, and that was just part of his, his, you know, career in sports. I mean, <laughs> I just want to know if they're going to be able to remember the time when he was eating spaghetti with his toes. Oh, <laughs> right. See, that's, those are some memories you want to keep. Up right. Baby. You want to hold on to those, you know, yeah. those go in the yeah. baby book. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah. Hank's entire town. So everybody would forget about him being a mutant. And everyone was fine with it. Every single X-Men that's been recruited so far was like, yeah, it's great. Cyclops and, and Bobby and Angel were like, yeah, mind wipe everybody. It's fine. So, uh, but, well, but we, we, we kind of <laughs> skipped over the fact that he caused the machine in the conquistadors gimmick and in his little villa to blow up. Mm hmm. Without waiting for the beast or his parents to be out of the building, he was well, like, "I think that he forgot he was about just them like, too." Personally, he was like, "Yep, fuck it, I it, now I can't wait no longer." <laughs> Xavier did not recruit him into his school; he recruited him into a terrorist organization. <laughs> well, we knew that. We're going to teach you history. And murder. <laughs> murder. In the back of the issue, there's a letter that I kind of want to read for you guys, if you don't mind. Go for this it. Is a faithful reader has, has written the letter to Dear Stan, Arnold, and Jim. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Who's Jim? Hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. It should be. X-Men number 49, I feel, to be an improvement over the previous issues. First, there's the old X-Men logo, back. I I hadn't realized I missed it so much until it, I saw it again. The unsurpassed Steranko cover. Yeah, how about that? He's calling it an unsurpassed Steranko cover. This guy loved this cover, like, like us. And the return of the good old continued story that works so well in the X-Men stories. That's about all I have to say about issue 49. I'll leave further comments to those who write better than I. Concerning the new costumes, I dig their new individualistic uniforms, but I think you kind of ran out of ideas when you designed the angels and the beasts. <laughs> <laughs> it is common knowledge that red, blue, yellow, is the most frequently used uniform color in the history of comics. How about adding more variety by means of color to the X-Men's costumes by giving the Beast an orange and black uniform, leaving out the part, leaving out the pant legs that restrict movement and make him look like he forgot to put on his boots. The Angel would be more suited to a yellow uniform with purple trimming. I hope you seriously consider it. Having done a minute's research on the subject, I have come to the conclusion that Angel can't fly. Not another one of those letters. <laughs> I can hear Stan moan. He can't fly by his wings, I mean. First, let's look at the fact at the facts. Warren Worthington III's wings are a part of his body, not artificial, and are roughly five and a half feet in length. Since he's able to conceal them 
on his person by a harness. Staying within the realm of pseudoscience, I can safely say he is not able to fly up by his wings because at the 11-foot wingspan, it's not large enough to allow him to be supported aerodynamically by air currents. Also, his muscles couldn't possibly have the strength and stamina to support him in the air for any length of time. But as we all know, the angel does fly, and if not by his wings, then how? It's my theory that the angel also has the power of levitation, like his contemporary Marvel Girl, and his wings are merely a secondary characteristic of his true mutant power. I'd be interested in hearing my fellow readers' comments concerning my hypothesis. Signed, Mark Grunewald. And they give his actual address here. Um, oh, that's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> like the whole address? Yes. Like, wow. 1260 West Haven Drive, Oakhurst, Wisconsin, 54901. <laughs> now, Mark Grunewald uh, is a very well-known Marvel writer who wasn't writing at this point because when he wrote that letter, he was 15 years old. But Mark Grunewald went on to uh, to write Captain America. He went on to write Hawkeye. Uh, he went on to write Quasar, the Avengers. And he he's so well liked, so beloved in his in his work that he has actually his run on Captain America has been put in a an omnibus. So Mark Grunewald is somebody that actually can write a pretty good story. Uh, I just think it's really neat that this, this, especially he's addressing some of the things that we have talked about, namely the uniform, uh, maybe angels. Um, <laughs> but I think it's cool that he's kind of going, what the hell's going on here? You guys, you know? Yeah. And it's Mark, yeah. Mark Greenwald. Well, I'll let you guys know uh, next episode, we're going to read X-Men 54 and 55. Um, again, if you want to drop us a letter, you can catch us at House of X Book Club at gmail.com. And we'll, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.